Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Hiring halted, U.S. firms hiring fewer workers in May. The question is, does the Fed get to work in June? Mexico moves the nation, promising plenty of troops to head to the border to ward off the threat of U.S. tariffs. And beyond meaty expectations, the fake meat firm gives us some pretty sizzling earnings. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again this Friday. Not any ordinary Friday, of course. It is U.S. payrolls report, the jobs numbers, and they were weaker than expected. Let me get you right to the details and walk you through these, and then we'll get some analysis. 75,000 jobs created last month versus 175 expected. We also got some revisions lower for April numbers and May 2. Overall, though, as a marker here, the unemployment rate was unchanged at 3.6% multi-generational low, of course. We also got wage numbers too, slightly softer than expected at growth of 0.2%. U.S. futures right now are higher. The takeaway, the message here for me, it may only be one jobs report and one number, set of numbers at least, but it's certainly more weighted towards further Fed action here and rate cuts versus not. And I think that's the bet that investors are making this morning. The Dow right now on track to rise for the fourth straight session in a row. It's been a week, though, of easing measures around the world from central banks. India, Australia cutting rates, as I mentioned. The ECB head Mario Draghi also providing more loans to Eurozone banks yesterday. Not a moment too soon. What we got today, the German Bundesbank slashing their growth forecast for the next two years. Industrial output numbers today were also weaker than expected. This, of course, is a nation that will be closely following the talks this weekend between U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and the Chinese central bank governor, Li Gang. Li said today that Beijing has lots of big stimulus guns at the ready if the trade war worsens. Well, I can tell you, speaking of big stimulus guns, President Trump would, I think, like the Federal Reserve to be a little bit more pro active too. He told Fox News last night that the Dow would be as much as 10,000 points higher if the Fed hadn't raised rates last year. 10,000 points higher. One could argue perhaps that the Dow would be a lot higher if we didn't have a trade war and uh, tariff threats going around left, right and centre too. But let's get to the jobs report before I say anything else that gets me into trouble. Paul Monica joins me now. Paul, a weaker number than expected, clearly. It follows the private payrolls, the ADP numbers that we got this week too. So perhaps not as big a surprise as mentioned. But walk me through the numbers. What do you make of this? 
Yeah, I think, uh, Julia, you already mentioned 75,000 jobs added last month. That was disappointing, much below the forecast. But there's another number, also 75,000, that is equally disappointing. That's the number of jobs revised downward for March and April. So when everyone talks about how one month is not a trend, well, guess what? We now have three months where the jobs numbers aren't as good as once thought. That could be viewed as a trend, and I think it's going to increase pressure on the Federal Reserve, not just from President Trump, but from the broader financial markets to potentially signal at its June meeting that a rate cut might be coming as soon as July. And this is the point, because now investors and, of course, the Federal Reserve pouring over these data points to look for weakness. And the debate this week has been whether or not the Federal Reserve is ready to make an insurance rate cut, a cut perhaps even before the data signals it's necessary. How soon could they do that, Paul? Because that's also the debate. Could we see the Fed move in June or do we at least get a signal and perhaps they go in July if they're going to do it? Yeah, I think that if the Fed were to move in June, that would really set off some alarm bells because I think the narrative would quickly change from, wow, the Fed is listening to the markets to oh my gosh, they're doing it this quickly? What do they know that we don't that really scares the bejesus out of them, so to speak? So I think given that Jerome Powell, like all of his predecessors, they like to telegraph things in advance, they set the table for a rate cut in July with comments in the Fed statement in June, as well as Powell's own press conference. I think the good news, if you want to call it that, for the Fed is that wage growth ticked back a little bit, 3.1% growth year over year as opposed to 3.2% last month. That means that inflation signs are cooling off a little bit. And that was, I think, the big worry for the Fed. Wage growth picked up and it looked like the job market was still healthy. Wages were rising. That's inflationary. And the Fed doesn't want to lower rates with inflation still as a concern. Inflation really isn't the biggest worry right now. It's the deceleration in the U.S. economy that we're seeing that I think is the bigger worry for the Fed at this point. Yeah, and I feel that this is such an important point with the debate out there of just how inflationary the tariffs are going to be as far as prices in the United States are concerned. Because even if ultimately we're seeing the average job gains coming down here on a monthly basis for 2019, we have to reiterate that these are six decade lows for the unemployment rate and the jobs market remains incredibly strong. What's the risk here, Paul, that the Fed moves, we then get trade deals and actually the Fed finds themselves having acted too quickly because that's the other side of the argument here. Yeah, I think the possibility still exists that the Fed may stay on pause because they are concerned about just what you uh, talked about, Julia, that namely, if this economic slowdown is a manufactured crisis because of obstinate politicians in the U.S. and China and Mexico that are all digging in their heels and, you know, looking at a trade war and retaliatory tariffs, if that trade nightmare winds up going away and we have a good trade deal that rejuvenates the financial markets and potentially the economy, then the Fed has to worry about inflation again and things possibly overheating. So I think that is in the back of Jerome Powell's mind and all the other Fed members as well. That might be a reason why they have to still proceed cautiously. But again, the jobs numbers were not that encouraging today. And when you add other signs like the ISM manufacturing weakness, the inverted yield curve, that still paints a picture of a slowing economy, possibly even a recession in 2020. Yeah, lots of signals here to watch. Paula Monica, thank you so much 
for that. All right. As Paul was mentioning there, of course, trade remains front and center. Talks continue between the United States and Mexico today. But it does look like Mexico is making promises to crack down on migrants. They've said they'll deploy some 6,000 National Guard troops to the border with Guatemala. Paula Newton has been in Mexico City for us all week. Paula, interesting move here which I'm sure the United States will welcome. The question is, is it enough to prevent the United States from hitting them with tariffs as of Monday? Because that's what we're counting down to here. Yeah, and Julia, look, the White House is saying so far it is not enough. As you pointed out, those talks continue. At issue, though, are those migrant flows, and they really want some legal changes to asylum laws, and that's what the United States believes will actually help uh, them stem that flow of migrants. Gosh, uh, Julia, you'd like to be able to tell investors that they can at least go into this weekend calmly, not at all. I want to point out that the president here, President Lopez Obrador, says that if these talks fall apart, uh, today that tomorrow he will be all set and ready to go with retaliatory tariffs. So think about it, Julia. Just building on what Paul just said, when you look at the kinds of decisions that the Fed needs to be making here, you are looking at trade wars writ large. At the table today in D.C., a lot at stake. And whether or not they can avoid uh, those 5% tariffs on Monday, but then avoid that escalation in trade as well. Um, Mexico does have some uh, American uh, sectors that it can target. Uh, they're well known, and they will continue to try and target those retaliatory tariffs, starting by an announcement on Saturday if those talks fall apart in Washington. Yeah, and you make the, a great point here, which is that trade and trade tariffs are being used for non-trade related issues. And that's the crux of the, the confusion here, I think, for investors. It's what else might tariffs be used for if you can use them for flows of individuals trying to enter the United States. But to that point, Paula, what are we seeing in terms of flows? Because, you know, you've been reporting throughout the morning that we're seeing an increase in migrant flows, perhaps trying to get in because they're afraid of a greater crackdown here from both the Mexicans and the United States. So it's like now or never, if you want to move in, it's almost exacerbated the problem short term. And, and that is very much the issue, isn't it? Um, certainly a lot of the human smugglers that work around this have been working the issue for several weeks, most principally this week, and saying, look, you need to get in under the wire here. The laws could change. And that's been obviously exacerbating the crisis. The issue here, though, is that Mexico has been making, I would say, some uh, moves that have gained a lot of publicity here in Mexico and have gotten the attention on the White House. And that is trying to even intercede these caravans, small ones, albeit, as they begin to move from Central America into Mexico. So you're still talking hundreds of miles away from that U.S. border. But is it enough? And right now, Julia, the White House is saying at this moment it is not enough. And they expect those tariffs to go in, into action on Monday. That delinking, though, is clear, though, right? We are looking at economic tools that are now becoming economic weapons. And that is what is so destabilizing to investors. And obviously, those multinational companies, which I have to point out, Julia, some of them were looking to Mexico to try and steer clear of that China trade war. And here they are. Yeah, and they got caught out. But hey, it brought the Mexicans to the table. And if they're deploying troops and going to take action, then I think the White House will perhaps call this a win. Paula Newton, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Facebook in focus, stopping the pre-installation of its apps on Huawei's phones. That includes Facebook itself, WhatsApp and Instagram. Haddis Gold joins us now. Haddis, great to have you with us. How is this going to work? Because my understanding is you can still download those applications afterwards. You're just not going to get them automatically if you buy a Huawei phone. Is that right? 
Yeah, Julia, this is the latest American company that has to respond to the Trump administration blacklisting pretty much any Huawei phone, uh, any American company from interacting with Huawei products, which I have to note is the second largest smartphone manufacturer in the world. So this is a big deal for companies like Facebook. So you're right. Uh, Any Huawei phone will no longer be able to have Facebook pre-installed on the phone. So the moment you get it out of the box, you already have Facebook there. That's obviously very important and very valuable for a company like Facebook to have because it increases the likelihood that if you don't already have Facebook or even if you do, you will use it because they took care of that step for you of downloading it onto their phone. Now, you're right that uh, users will still be able to go to their their app store or anything like that and download the Facebook app and sign up that way. However, there is another issue at play that could affect even that step of users being able to download Facebook independently onto their Huawei phone. And that has to do with Google. Google is also caught up in this Washington blacklist, and they are actually warning, according to the Financial Times, they are trying to warn the Trump administration against uh, making Google have some sort of special license in order to interact with Huawei because they warned that this could create sort of two versions of their Android operating system. And if you don't have that Android operating system on, on the Huawei phone, you might not even be able to download Facebook or other apps. And Google is actually warning that a sort of split-level Android operating system could be susceptible to new bugs, and that could actually harm U.S. national security. And obviously, could also harm Google's business model, because then Huawei might be forced to create its own operating system. And that's not very good for Google in the business sense. So wait, let's be clear about this. So what we're saying here is, Google's saying to to the U.S. government, look, We have to be really careful here because if Huawei come up with their own operating system, which is a hybrid of what you can still have as part of Google's but adapted by Huawei, then actually the phones could be that much more insecure or unsafe and actually could be available to be hacked. So you're kind of creating problems that might not have existed in the first place. Exactly, Julia. They're saying that we right. be more susceptible to bugs because the way the Google operating system currently works comes with a bunch of extra measures in there that sort of scan your phone for malware. And they're worried that the Huawei version might not be as good and that it is actually in the U.S. national security interest to allow Google operating systems on Huawei phones. And Julia, I do have to say this is we're starting to see what we're what we've heard of sort of the Internet Iron Curtain, two versions of the Internet possibly coming out. And this is what Google is warning against. Yeah, fascinating. Hadis Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver and beyond meat stock sizzling pre-market. We had a really juicy set of numbers from the fake meat company. Any more analogies than someone's going to tell me off? Claire Sebastian, quick, get in here and save me. Uh, the feeding frenzy continues, though, as far as the stock price is concerned. I make that almost a, what, $6 billion valuation now. Wowzers. Yeah. A really big move expected when the market opens, Julia, uh, to about $125. That would be five times the IPO price. I will say that even the most bullish analysts who have upgraded their price target today off the back of this earnings report, most of them don't get to $125 on the price target. So this might be a bit of a a knee-jerk reaction. But mostly this earnings report did confirm the overall thesis that has propelled this stock price uh, since the IPO, that this is a company that does have the potential to be profitable and is in a very high growth market. The revenue 
you beat expectations. The net loss that they posted uh, was lower than expected. Uh, and crucially, the company is guiding towards break-even this year. Revenue uh, expected to be up 140%. And one thing that the more bullish analysts are really latching onto today uh, is the fact that built into that guidance are none of the partnerships that they are currently testing. That includes Tim Hortons, uh, and they teased that there are others that they can't tell us about. Uh, so this is a conservative uh, outlook, and it may even go higher than that. So certainly a lot of positivity off the back of this report today. What about the competition, though, here? I mean, we've got Nestle just in the last week or so announcing their own amazing burgers coming. We know Impossible Brands have got Impossible Burgers. Is the demand out there enough that it can take all of these players? Or is some of this share and some of this growth going to be cannibalized over the next sort of 12 months or so as other players come on board? Tyson Foods, another one that's going to be a big player, I think, too. Yeah, I think they've got to be really careful of this. There are some giants, as you say, moving into the space. Nestle, Tyson Foods, they've got big competition, particularly when it comes to restaurants from Impossible Foods, which is seen uh, as their closest competitor at the moment. I think one of the things that a lot of people are looking to uh, when it comes to Beyond is can they partner with more restaurants? This is something that Impossible uh, has so far got the edge on with their partnership with Burger King. The question is, will McDonald's move into this space? They are under pressure from their shareholders uh, to try and match the Burger King move with the Impossible Whopper. Uh, and Beyond is a company that, that many believe that McDonald's might partner with. That is something that people believe would propel the stock price. But, of course, there's another risk in that. Can they meet demand? Can they ramp up quick enough to meet a partnership like that with, say, 36,000 stores uh, around the world? That is a challenge they face. And the supply of the materials as well, pea protein, because they've had supply issues in the past. Jeffrey's says that if they do a partnership with McDonald's, that could increase a further $25 on the share price. Wowzers. Hey, Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. CNN has obtained a video showing how close US and Russian warships came to each other in the Pacific. This Friday, the two governments are giving conflicting accounts of the incident. Both sides claim they had to perform emergency maneuvers to avoid a collision. Theresa May steps down today as leader of the Conservative Party. The British Prime Minister announced her resignation two weeks ago, saying she deeply regretted being unable to deliver Brexit. She'll stay on as Prime Minister until a successor is in place. The first technological war of the coming digital era. That's how a Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, described the situation surrounding Huawei. Speaking at an economic forum in St. Petersburg, he said the Chinese tech giant had been unceremoniously pushed out of the global market. Quote, Russia has agreed a deal to build a 5G network with Huawei. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but still coming up on the show, way, way up, why billions of dollars are being sucked into space and May's teaching moment. The British Prime Minister wants to give schools a multi-billion dollar boost. Will she get away with it? Stay with us. You're watching CNN. To first move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange this Friday, the final session of the week. And we are looking at a more positive start to the session, particularly compared to what we saw yesterday after that weaker than expected U.S. jobs report. Just 75,000 jobs created to remind you. We saw March and April numbers revised a bit lower as well. The monthly job gains now averaging around 164,000 per month this year. That's down from last year's 
223,000. What we are seeing, though, is the Dow on track for its best weekly gain of the year, up some 3.5% this week. Same story for the S&P 500. The Nasdaq, slightly shy of that, uh, up some 2% as well. Oil, we know that the tech sector has been front and centre in the trade concerns, and that's been a relative weight over the last couple of weeks in particular. What about the oil markets right now? Higher for a second day, bouncing uh, higher from bear market levels, of course, down some 20% since uh, the most recent highs. Getting support from new uh, Saudi Arabian comments this morning. The Saudis saying they're confident that OPEC production cuts will remain in place in the second half of this year. So some support for the oil markets coming there. More discussion on what's going on in oil later on in the show. But for now, let's bring it back to that jobs report and get some analysis. Uh, Diane Swank is chief economist at Grant Thornton and joins us now. Diane, fantastic to have you on First Move this morning. Your assessment of the jobs numbers to start. What really was a dismal report and opens the door to a Fed rate cut, a preemptive cut in June. They've been considering this anyways because of the trade situation. And what we saw was the gains in professional hires and healthcare were still there, but the shortfall in everything from construction to manufacturing activity, retail, some of that is cyclical and some of that is structural. We know in retail, we had a surge in closures in the first quarter, and that's showing up as a loss in retail as traditional retail try to compete with the big box discounters and they're moved on to the online behemoths and online presence. They just have not been able to do that. And so that's more structural in nature. But this is really showing some underlying weakness in reflection of tariffs, an overhang of inventories and slow, slower global growth. We were expecting a slowdown in underlying payroll growth. This was much more than expected. And we're now within an error measure of zero. Okay, so in light of everything that you just said, and actually that very much ties to what contributed to much of the strength that we saw in the, G, the Q1 growth numbers, which was the inventory build and the, the decline in imports versus exports, how do you think the Fed's going to look at this? And in terms of whether they indicate perhaps a cut, what about the timing on that too? I, I think we're up for a June rate cut. I think the Fed has been fairly clear this week at the Fed Listens Conference, which I happen to be at in Chicago. The, in, you know, much of the board, much of the um, Federal Reserve presidents were there. They were quite chatty about what's going on and their concerns about a sudden shift in sentiment and what that could mean for the economy, even as underlying fundamentals were okay. And they're also very concerned about the trade situation and what trade wars meant as a headwind. And you really saw this shift in pivot and a willingness to cut rates preemptively to try to soften the blow of tariffs on the U.S. economy and the slowdown in global growth that we're seeing. Also, there, like I said, the sentiment issue, a mood issue, is very, very important to the Fed. They were taken aback by what happened last December and are taking the lessons um, very seriously. We had very good economic data going into the chaos of December and just fear alone of a trade war and that the Fed might be asleep at the wheel actually prompted a lot of pullback by consumers and businesses that showed up in the actual data. And I think that's what they're worried about is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And they want to show up confidence along with sort of ease up a bit to allow the economy to continue. They really want to extend the length of this economy, which is not something we've seen the Fed talk about at length in the past. They're talking about employment, um, really engaging people in this marathon of an expansion, which 
across 10 years in June, and they want to engage more people in the race because even though it's now tied the 1990s in terms of its length of expansion, we still have too many people on the sidelines. The, the messaging here, though, is going to be critical, surely, because the risk here is if they do decide to cut rates and they do it in June, that they suggest some greater element of fear, perhaps, than even the market's showing, and also that they look like they're being led by the market and sort of following through with the pricing that, that investors are giving them here in terms of what they want the Federal Reserve to do. How do they manage both of those things? That's a great question, and credibility is a critical issue for the Fed, particularly now that they've been under attack pretty consistently, not just by this administration it preceded, but certainly accelerated under this administration. Partisan attacks have been very common this entire expansion because of the role and controversial role the Fed had to play to shore up growth. I think what's important is, even though this may look like the Fed is capitulating, I think the reality is they're doing what they need to do. Um, you know, Jay Powell wears, he once said that Greenspan told him to wear head muffs, Diane, and he really does not listen to those issues. I have to because we have to go to break. The market open is next. Brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Diane Swan. Thank there. you. The market open is next. from the New York Stock Exchange where the ceiling is about to fly off, quite frankly. As you can hear, the screaming and shouting behind me revolved. The online e-retailer is listing today and there are a lot of very happy people, I can tell you. What we are seeing right now is a higher open for stocks. I think, in fact, counterintuitively led by that weaker U.S. jobs number, just 75,000 jobs created in May. The argument being, of course, does this make it more likely that the Federal Reserve now looks ahead and starts to signal the likelihood of a rate cut here, as Diane Swank was just talking about with us there. Oh, there you go. They've stopped screaming now for uh, the moment, at least. Obviously, the things to watch as well. This weekend, the talks between Stephen Mnuchin and uh, the chief of the uh, Central Bank of China are going to be sitting down in Japan. So watching headlines on trade as well. Very important for these markets right now. Ten-year bond yields under pressure following that jobs report, down more than uh, six basis points, 2.06%. This is near the week's lows, uh, and we will continue to uh, watch that in particular. Let me t give you a look at what we're seeing as far as uh, the global movers are concerned in this session. Barnes and Noble in focus. The bookseller is being taken private by hedge fund Elliott Advisors. It's an all-cash deal worth almost $700 million. Elliott bought the UK bookseller Waterstones last year. So Barnes & Noble being taken private. Beyond Meat rallying, reporting a narrower-than-expected first-quarter loss. Sales were the big story, storing over 200%. They were also out with a pretty bullish sales forecast too. This, of course, their first earnings since going public last month. Zoom video also in focus today. It's out with its first earnings since going public. The video communications firm sales more than doubled with the earnings also beating expectations and investors liking the fact that the company provided some strong guidance here too. AMD shares higher in the session so far this morning. Actually, slightly lower. Uh, it was the best performing stock 
on the Nasdaq on Monday. This after Morgan Stanley uh, analysts raised the rating. Uh, a long time AMD bear, the analyst there admitting the call was wrong. And in fact, the shares have risen more than 160% since then. So, uh, wow, some incredible moves this week as a result of that. All right, let's bring it back now to the oil market and uh, do a deep dive into what's going on there. We've got both Brent and U.S. crude up, but off today's highs. WTI, as we were mentioning earlier in the show, still in bear market territory. Francisco Blanche is uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch's head of global commodities and derivatives, and he joins us now. Francisco, fantastic to have you with us. I've seen some comments that you've made recently about Thank the you, sheer level of disruption that we can see on the supply side is the worst it's been for some three decades, whether it's Venezuela or Iran. But right now, it's the demand side of the story that matters. Is that what's driving us to, uh, to bear market territory for, for WTI at this moment? Uh, that, that's right, Julie. I mean, you, you, put it, you put it well. We have the highest levels of uh, oil supply disruptions in three decades since the first uh, Iraq war. Um, and, uh, and, but, but it doesn't matter because despite the fact that we've lost, uh, well, I guess it does matter, right? We, we've lost 2.3 million barrels a day of supply sequentially from November all the way through May uh, through Saudi Arabia production cuts, but also, as you pointed out, uh, Venezuelan uh, output declines uh, accelerated by sanctions, by U.S. sanctions. We are down to uh, down 34, 35% year on year in Venezuela. We're also down very meaningfully uh, in terms of Iranian barrels hitting the market. And then remember that this is all happening in the context of slowing global demand. Demand is now running at half the rate in terms of growth, half the rate that we've seen in the last five years. So we have very muted demand growth. And frankly, uh, in the last few weeks, uh, we've had this uh, risks around trade war uh, with China, with Mexico coming to the fore and creating additional downside demand risks. So, so I think it's very important to understand that if it wasn't for the supply shocks that we've had, uh, perhaps oil prices would be a lot lower uh, than they are today. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to understand for investors, never mind anybody else, what your base case is for, for oil prices here. Not only have we seen the Chinese-U.S. trade talks collapse, but also to your point about the potential Mexico tariffs. I mean, this is something that doesn't even relate to trade. It's about immigration. So how do you even quantify what the likely demand impact's going to be, never mind the, the supply issues that we're talking about here? Well, uh, look, Julia, you have to think about uh, this. In, okay, there's two dimensions. There is the trade dimension and the, there is the geopolitical disruption dimension, the Iran dimension. Um, and, and both cases, they're pretty binary. Uh, either we get a trade deal or we don't. Uh, either we get uh, further Iran disruptions uh, with potential uh, military conflict in the background, uh, or we don't. Um, and we get the Iranian barrels back. But, but there is an additional scenario, which is what happens if China walks away from the negotiating table, deciding that uh, they, they uh, are not going to get a good deal with the U.S., and opt to start buying Iranian barrels. That's what I call the uber-bearish oil scenario, um, because we're going to be, uh, in, in, that, in that scenario, China prepares for much slower growth. The global economy slows down materially, but then we have a lot of supply that suddenly gets released back to the market as uh, the Chinese government, if or if rather the Chinese government decides to ignore uh, those uh, U.S.-Iran um, export restrictions. 
So, um, so I think that's why a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the speculative length in oil markets has been exiting in recent weeks. Uh, remember, this is not a fundamental move. Inventories haven't really changed this dramatically. Um, it's just that that uh, uh, market participants are very wary of being long with some of these downside tail risks that are arising here. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. The idea that we could see China then turning to Iran and buying their oil is a, a huge wild card here. On May 21st, you also made the point that if we did see an escalation of tensions in, in the Middle East, we could see oil prices back up to $100 a barrel. So that the volatility potential here is huge. What kind of feed through do we right. see to the prices that consumers pay at the pump? If we're talking here about the United States, how quickly do they adjust? Because in well, the end fit for the U.S. consumer, that's what's front and center. Well, uh, I, I'm glad you asked that question because I think there is a very important here, uh, very important point to make here. I do think that if, uh, uh, in particular, if tariffs on Mexico go through on Monday, we're going to be seeing a big impact at the pump. Uh, remember, uh, Mexico is the third largest crude exporter to the USFA, uh, exports 700,000 barrels a day of crude oil uh, to U.S. refineries in the Gulf Coast. If they have to start paying tariffs on that, there's going to be a big impact at the pump. Um, and and um, I'm not sure if uh, the tariffs go through on Monday. And if they do go through, is, do they go through on $350 billion worth of Mexican exports into the U.S.? Or does oil get exempted? I, I don't know. It's a little bit hard to say. Um, I think the risk of mixing tariffs with immigration, as you pointed out, uh, is that um, you start being, uh, you know, not too surgical about what you're trying to do and, and uh, ultimately creates confusion and confusion leads to uncertainty and uncertainty leads to paralysis, which is really the worst thing you want to have in, economic, in, in an economy. Paralysis is a bad thing for economics, is a bad thing for business. Wow. I, I just don't think anybody's talking about this and the, the impact of, of Mexican tariffs on energy prices here in the United States. Fascinating. Francisco, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Francisco Blanche, Bank of America. Thank you, Merrill Julian. Lynch there. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But uh, coming up, NASA set to make an announcement that's pretty much out of this world, letting private companies buy into outer space. We've got the details for you. Stay with us. First move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Two media giants are reportedly in a bidding war over film and TV hitmaker J.J. Abrams. For Variety reports, Apple and CNN's parent company Warner Media are seeking to strike a deal for his production company, Bad Robot. The deal could be valued at nearly half a billion dollars. French President Emmanuel Macron is set to meet with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey today. A Twitter spokesperson says the two will continue their discussions focused on building a healthy online environment. France is working on draft legislation requiring platforms like Twitter to remove content with hate speech within 24 hours. All right, my favorite story of the day. NASA is just about to make a big announcement. It's putting low Earth orbit up for sale. 
Essentially, NASA is giving private companies the opportunity to take over a raft of NASA operations and create whole new industries. It's NASA's way of shifting its focus to more ambitious goals like sending people back to the moon and even to Mars. It comes amid a major investment boost in the space sector. Venture capitalist firm Space Angels say space companies raised $1.7 billion of equity in the first quarter of 2019, nearly twice the sum raised in the last quarter of last year. Joining me now is Chad Anderson. He's the CEO of Space Angels. Great to have you with us. Hi, Julie. Happy As you can see, I'm super excited about this subject. Why is NASA doing this? I think the news today is really two parts. Yeah. Um, the first is to expand um, access to the space station. So they're going to do this through a number of means, uh, greater access to private companies to operate there. They're going to open it up for marketing opportunities as well, which is a bit controversial. Um, they're going to give access to NASA astronaut time, and they're also going to open it up for private astronauts to go for stays of up to 30 days. So that's very interesting, kind of supplying the market with space. And the second part is on the demand side. So this is really about enabling commercial uh, stations and being an anchor tenant of them and, and sort of opening up and, and letting them know how much demand NASA would have for these types of stations. So Is the message here the fact that the private sector, and we've got all sorts of well-known companies now, Blue Origin, SpaceX, to name a couple of them, are they just more efficient at making these trips and utilizing things like the space station than NASA has ever been and government money ultimately has ever been? They absolutely are, and NASA's really starting to embrace that. So the commercial crew and commercial cargo programs are what enabled SpaceX to get off the ground, if you will. And, um, and the government is really starting to realize you know, the efficiencies in schedule and in cost. And so they've now applied this to the commercial lunar payload services program. In getting NASA back to the moon, they've just awarded some contracts last week. Yes. Um, and, and it's the same type of program where NASA is a customer of private companies. And this is what they're doing today, is they're announcing that they are now doing this in low Earth orbit as well. And so just to give you an example, um, the Space Launch System is NASA's big rocket that they're building, the yes. biggest rocket ever built. It is, you know, taking, it's years over, over schedule and it's cost 30 billion to make. 30 billion dollars. 30 billion. Right. And SpaceX has been able to do this for an order of magnitude less. And by doing so and being, you know, bringing the cost down. How much less? A lot less, like <laughs> an order of magnitude, like maybe five billion. Um, wow. And so, and this is, they've been able to develop Falcon, their Falcon rocket and also their Falcon Heavy, which competes almost directly with it. And so um, it's incredible. And even amongst the commercial providers to NASA of these commercial cargo and commercial crew programs, there's quite a wide disparity. So the old government contractor, Boeing, um, does things in an older, you know, incumbent type of way. They are charging almost what the Russians are charging. So the Russians charge us now $80, $80 million to get to the space station. Boeing charges a little over 70 per seat to NASA. Yes. SpaceX is able to do it for 44. Wow. So when we talk about Blue Origin and we talk about SpaceX, and particularly for someone like Elon Musk, he talks about living on Mars. He talks about the sort of to the moon and beyond options here. Is it feasible when NASA makes an announcement like this to say, look, we're going to give low orbit to other people and we're going to focus on the moon and Mars. Yeah. In the end, it's going to be the likes of SpaceX. Um, Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic that actually 
end up getting is there, surely. I feel like NASA's being a little bit put out of business here, or at least being circumvented. There's a bit of truth there. Yes. No, so what this enables NASA to do and why they've really embraced this, in part, partially I think what, what you're saying is true, and a lot of people have felt that way at NASA for a long time, yes. which is why they've been so slow to adapt and so, so slow to, to, to jump on board. But they're realizing that by, by working with private companies and doing it for much less and doing it much faster, they're able to accomplish so much more. And so um, that's really, I think, um, it seems that the, the, the idea behind this announcement today and what they're doing in low Earth orbit is really to save them money and also generate revenue to support their bigger missions to Moon and Mars. So, a hundred years ago, you worked for JP Morgan, you're a real estate yeah. investor, then you switched to space and now you're investing in some of these private companies. Yeah. We'll get you back on to talk about some of these because they're incredibly exciting, but how do you choose? How do you look at a company and go, you know what, this is going to be a real winner, this is going to make great return for my investors, yeah. you know, I'm going to invest in you. Yeah. How do you go about that process, particularly in this area? Yeah, so it's important to think about the context and when all this started. So before SpaceX, there wasn't even any access to space, so there was nothing really to invest in. And that was in 2009 when they first got, uh, took a customer to orbit. Yeah. It took a few years, but now we're maybe five to seven years into this entrepreneurial space age. We've been investing since the beginning, so even since before 2009. So, so um, we've been involved, and so we've got um, uh, we're without a doubt the most established, and so that really helps us um, get access to these companies. And we've got great networks that we've built into NASA, MIT, some of these other uh, space incubators and and startup labs. And so we really pound the pavement to get the companies to come. Positive to returns. So far, um, again, we're on venture capital timelines here, so we're investing in startups. And the timeline is five to seven years that we're looking at, and so we're right about at that time where we're going to start to see some of those returns. Our companies are doing very well on paper, and we're looking forward to some of this. <laughs> paper returns. Yeah. Chad, we'll get you back. Thank you, Chad Thank Anderson. You. There. All right, let me give you a look at what's going on as far as stocks are concerned, because they're soaring to not quite to the moon, but they're getting there. As you can see, the Nasdaq outperforming up some 1% to Funny, bad news is good news for these markets when you think the Federal Reserve will cut rates as a result. That's the takeaway. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Still ahead, May's Class Act. Why Britain's outgoing Prime Minister wants to pour billions of dollars into schools. We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Let me give you a look once again at what we're seeing for the stock markets this morning. Responding positively to that weaker than expected jobs report for the month of May here in the United States. The takeaway, as I mentioned, bad news being good news here, if it ultimately leads to some easing from the Federal Reserve. And that's the message coming from both the bond markets today, pricing in the possibility of Fed action, of course, in either this month, June or July, in fact. And right now, stocks are higher set to add to four straight sessions of gains if we end up closing like this. Right now, you can see higher by almost 1% for the Nasdaq, the tech stocks outperforming. I will continue to track this over the coming hours, of course, on the Express and Quest Means Business. But for now, the end of a turbulent era. Today's Theresa May steps down as leader of Britain's Conservative Party. She will stay on, though, as Prime Minister, but only until a successor is in place. Let the games begin. She plans to leave office with a series, though, of big spending announcements, including a multi-billion dollar overhaul of Britain's schools. Bianca Nabilo is at 10 Downing Street. A few technical issues, but we have got you on the phone, I believe, Bianca. Great to have you with us. 
clearly the one word here that she's trying to achieve is legacy. Legacy building here, having failed on Brexit. Is she going to get away with some big spending measures here, Bianca? It's unlikely, Julia. And yes, I am coming to you from directly outside Downing Street, because as often happens here, there's, there's a little security incident which is under control. But it's been a peculiar day of coming and going here, actually, because Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit party, on Theresa May's last official day as leader of the Conservatives, decided he would turn up and give a letter to the Prime Minister urging the government to include them in the Brexit negotiations in their next phases. So Mrs May's legacy remains incredibly troubled when it comes to Brexit, and this is just now one new problem for her successor. In terms of other policy, it was remarked by pundits and MPs alike that she really struggled to create any kind of policy agenda outside of Brexit. When she took over at the helm and she gave her first speech on the steps of Downing Street on a sunny day back in 2016, she pledged to try and solve some of the burning injustices in society. But she fell woefully short of that by any metric and wasn't able to focus on it because Brexit has taken up almost all of the parliamentary oxygen here in the United Kingdom. And her successors, Julia, are going to face exactly the same problem. The fact that the parliamentary arithmetic has not changed, the fact that Parliament remains opposed to no deal, and that the EU is unwilling to negotiate any other agreement. So we are where we are, and the successor is going to have to face all of the same problems as Mrs May. Yes, Brexit will continue to suck oxygen in UK politics. Bianca Navilo, thank you so much for joining us and the hustle there that was required. All right, one more look at what we're seeing as far as stock markets are concerned. Gains, gains across the board, as you can see. We will continue the theme on The Express in a couple of hours. But for now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Have a great weekend. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.